Welcome, BBs, to a very special episode with a very special first guest. We are beyond excited to have Eddie join us today as we talk all things moolah. We've invited Eddie, a trading expert, to shine a light on what it means to invest, how can we set ourselves up for success, and can we actually retire early, and what are some money mistakes that we've done? So welcome, Eddie. Tell us about yourself. Who the heck are you? How did we meet? And what do you do? What are some of your passions outside of work? Hello. Thank you for having me on. I'm very, very excited to be here and to talk with the two of you. Um, so I went to the University of Illinois. So I'm a fresh graduate, just graduated in 2021, which is weird to say. Heidi, we met there through an organization about entrepreneurship. And then since graduating, I've been working at a company called Tasty Trade doing financial research. And what we do at Tasty Trade is try to empower individual investors to take their investments and wealth management into their own hands rather than using money managers. Wow. Sounds very interesting. Not the typical consultant or as Hannah and I. Um, So clearly your work and background revolve around research and really digging deep into the stock market. So one of the biggest topics that many of us hear about is, hey, if you have a company that offers a 401k match, you should be contributing to it, or you should probably open up a Roth IRA account ASAP. But what is what do each of the accounts mean? And from your perspective, is there one better than the other? There are a couple of different accounts, uh, and we can break them down into like two different pools. You have mm-hmm. employer and individual. So your 401k is set up by your employer, and it's managed kind of by your employer, kind of by you. These are all tax advantaged accounts. So you put money in now and you'll get some type of tax break either on the front or the back end. And so your 401k, it's, you know, contributed pre-tax. And so once you get your paycheck, it's already taken out. So you won't see that amount. It's already deducted. And it was an alternative to pensions. So instead of the employer putting money into the account for you, it shifted into your hands, um, which is neither, you know, a pro nor a con, Um, but that's like the 401k. So it's the employer side and there are like limits on that, how much you can put a year. But the biggest thing here is that if your employer matches one to one up to 5% or something like that, just make sure that you hit that amount. You can choose to put more in if you want, you can choose to just stop there. But as long as you hit the amount, it's I don't want to say it's free money, but it kind of is free money. It's money you're leaving on the table. So if you can get that free money from your employer, totally do it. And so like for the employer side, 401k, for the individual, you have your traditional IRAs and then your Roth IRAs. Roth IRA is going to be kind of the one we'll focus on because there are some more benefits there. And so those are individual accounts that you set up yourself and you contribute post-tax dollars. So whereas with the 401k, it's on your gross income. So, you know, before they get the income tax taken out with uh, Roth IRAs, it's post-tax. And so you put in the money after you've already paid tax on it. But then when you retire and you decide to withdraw money, it's completely tax-free. Again, there are uh, limits on your contributions. But the interesting thing about an IRA versus a 401k is that you have total control over your investments. With a 401k, you have to choose what the employer provides. So they'll give you a, a short list of 10 to 30 items that you can invest in and they're all kind of funds and managed. Whereas with an IRA, it's much more flexible. So with the IRA being more flexible, do you think that the flexibility gives it like 
an edge over a traditional employer 401k or does it depend on the individual? I think it almost always gives an edge because the, the really the only benefit in my eyes of the 401k is that you can get money from your employer on top of your investments. But aside from that, everything that you can pretty much invest in a 401k, you can do in an IRA, all of those funds. But on top of that, you can actually pick individual stocks, you can add bonds, you can pick um, ETFs, which we'll talk about, which is like a basket of stocks, and you can choose everything that you want. It's just that the 401k, you get the free money from the employer. So they kind of have different pros and cons. This is really good because I think maybe Hannah, you were smarter than me when I first started out. But when I first started my corporate job, I just assumed like maybe my company had the best intentions for me. I never really looked at the individual stocks that my money was being invested in. I just knew like every paycheck, X amount of money would be going in. And it wasn't until maybe like last year or like a couple months where I actually went in and saw like the different target fund dates, which I know we'll probably talk about later, but it's like, I don't know, like you have to really do your research to know where your money is going. Otherwise, like you can be like me three years down the line later and then going back and being like, where the heck is my money going to? And then having to like trace back everything. Yeah, it makes it really challenging. Honestly, 401ks, I think are a bit too confusing for most people. Like they're meant to make investing easy, but I think they do the opposite. They provide these extremely uh, confusing and antiquated funds that in order to find more information about, you have to go to a dozen links, understand each of the products within that fund, and then try to all tie it together. It's, it's almost harder than investing for yourself. So most people are just like, okay, I'm going to choose a target date fund, or I'm just going to choose the basic market fund, which, you know, <laughs> there are some downsides to that. As an individual investor, when I did look at our Heidi, our previous employers like target date funds, it was, it was just so much to digest, like so many different industries, uh, domestic, international funds, so much going on and a lot of detail that I feel like if I were to actually go in and look at every single area where my money was being invested, I would just get overwhelmed and not really know what to do. And I always feel like, oh, I'm not, you know, taking advantage of this industry or, or that fund. So for me personally, it's like, that level of detail is something I don't ever want to deal with. Um, but I know that some people really like to have the like ability to choose and, and switch often. Trust me, I do this for a living and I still was confused when I was going through my 401k <laughs> options. So don't feel like you are the only one. I was equally confused and then got to the point of like, this is, I'm just going to pick what's ever simple and I'll spend, I'll spend my like brain power on other stuff. Exactly. So Eddie, back to your point about 401k company match and how you personally advise, okay, just putting in the amount that will give you the map or yeah, give you the free money. <laughs> so then with the extra margin, where are you putting your dollars? Is it in the stock market, other assets? Like where are you investing? So like as... I'll tell, I'll talk about me personally in a second, but for just general kind of consensus is that once you hit the 401k match, if you still want to contribute to retirement accounts, you know, that's where you look at the Roth IRA. And so you can hit that because there's limits on the contributions. It's a relatively, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month, which if you have no other obligations is manageable outside of that. Then I have like an individual investing account 
where I have total control. It's not tax advantage, so I don't really get tax breaks on that, but it gives me like the entire control. And if I want to, let's say I retire at 35, then I can take the money out whenever. And so that's where the rest of my money personally goes. And for most of the people, that's probably what I would say as well, because instead of saving money, you can invest it. Um, again, if, if it's not money that you need in the next year or two. So Eddie, you mentioned a couple different ways for individuals to think about how they contribute money into their uh, traditional 401ks or their Roth IRAs. Do you think that there's an argument for maybe not maxing it out every single year? Because I think a lot of people our age in their 20s are being told like you need to take advantage of the tax implications of a Roth IRA, or you need to take advantage of your company match and put in the maximum contribution of like, I think it's $19,500 every year. So my question to you is, would there ever be a case where somebody doesn't do that and, and maybe only puts in like $10,000 a year? Yeah, 100%, especially for 401ks. Like I don't think maxing out your 401k for some people, I think it's really beneficial because it forces you to invest that money. Whereas if that money went into your savings or checkings account, a lot of people are sometimes like, oh, I have a little extra money here. And then that money disappears, right? There's people have this uh, spending inflation where as they make more money, they spend more money and it's like pretty linear. So for those people, I think it's really great. Just max it out. Then you know that you'll have money kind of building your nest egg. But for myself and um, for others, I would probably avoid it. Just hit the match. And then I, again, I'm, I'm not planning on waiting till 59 and a half or 60 to retire so I can withdraw that you know, money penalty free. So I'd rather not have it sitting there. Like I still want to take advantage of the tax implications where I can, but I'm okay foregoing some of those benefits for flexibility and freedom to do what I would like with my investments. Yeah. I think there's always an opportunity cost for when you, in any type of investment, and especially when it comes to something as restrictive as a 401k where you can't touch it until you're 60 and we're like in our 20s it's definitely a long-term game that maybe not everybody would be interested in I I know for myself like if I think about my lifetime assuming that I live to like 80 or 90 a majority of my money is going to be spent between the ages of 20 and and like 45 when I eventually have kids and I need to fund their lifestyles and, and ideally enjoy my life a little bit too. Um, and like what I've seen with my parents who are nearing retirement age and my grandparents who have been retired for a long time is that they really don't use that much money. Like they use enough to get by on a day-to-day, -day, but it's not like they're buying houses, sending kids off to school or, or doing that kind of stuff. So I think what you said resonates with me as, as an investor and like the way that I see my money spending throughout my lifetime is like, I see it saturated in between the ages of 30 and 45, but not necessarily like 55 and beyond. I think you're hundred percent right. I think a lot of people underestimate their, you know, earlier life expenditures and then overestimate what they will spend once they're retired. Uh, and I think a lot more people, once you retire, you tend to live a little bit more frugally because you're not maybe traveling all the time, or you're not going out with friends or doing all these activities because it's either not of interest, you don't have that social network to the same extent you did when you were 20 or 30, and you just have different, um, different priorities, right? Like, you know how you have a shift throughout life. I always think of it like the way 
when you're young, you have a certain like food palette. And then as you get older, it like matures and develops. It's the same thing with hobbies and interests. And when you tend to get older, you kind of focus on a few things. When you're younger, you want to do everything, right? So I, I'm, I'm all for spending money while you're young and enjoying it. But as long as you are putting something aside so that you can not have to work until you're 80. Exactly. So important, but also important to note that there's different ways to do this. Like not, not maxing it out is not necessarily wrong or right. Doing the opposite of that is also not necessarily wrong or right. Uh, but I feel like the, the way we get taught about investing in general is very like uh, biased towards that side of you need to save as much as you can and contribute as much as you can when you're young. So I do appreciate the other perspective where it's like, you can go middle of the road and, you know, have less in your retirement, but also spend it more when you are able-bodied and, and you can. 100%. I have some numbers that we can talk about later uh, <laughs> about how much you need to retire and, you know, living relatively frugally in retirement. So it's, it's some interesting numbers that are like very simple and manageable. And the cool thing is that you don't need as much money as you think you do when you retire. Especially after becoming closer with you, Hannah, like that perspective is definitely resonated because we've been taught like you should be taking advantage of XYZ, but then we forget like in our 30s, 20s, that's probably when we need a down payment or we're paying off debt, like student loans or car loans or whatever. And it's probably more beneficial to like pay that off or have the have a bigger nest egg for whatever emergencies that come up rather than if we even get to age 60, then we can draw out these funds. My perspective, it's less risk averse, but it's also a more privileged way of looking at it, right? I feel like the people who do really prioritize long-term retirement funds, very risk averse. And that might come from, you know, seeing their parents not having enough money to retire. So I do think that's an important thing to note in why certain people decide to invest one way or another. All right, so we got a glimpse of how we can support ourselves when we retire and what we can do today in our 20s uh, to, to set ourselves up for financial security and freedom in the future. But Eddie, what are some other ways that we can actively invest in to build wealth outside of maybe the Roth IRA or employer 401k? Yeah, so there, um, there are a number of different ways and different approaches for this, and it kind of goes off the point that you were saying, depending on someone's upbringing and their background, they'll have different, uh, different appetites for risk and what they can handle. So there are three kind of main categories I'll break it up into. There are a ton of different asset classes, whether you want to look at bonds or whether you want to look at you know crypto or other digital assets, but we won't really focus on those. I'm just going to focus on like your traditional stocks and market investments. And so the first one, which we touched on briefly earlier, are these target date funds. And so Target date funds are uh, a fund managed by an, an individual, a company, a group of individuals that rebalances, so kind of changes the percent of allocation towards investments, and then adjusts those assets as you get closer to retirement. And so they use a very simple, almost like a, you take 100 and you subtract your age from it, and that's what percent you should allocate towards stocks, and then the other percent goes towards bonds. So if you're younger, you have a greater greater exposure to stocks. If you're older, you have a greater exposure to bonds. This is, a lot of people think of it as like a set it and forget it. It's like, okay, I am fresh out of college. 
I, you know, was born in 1999. So I'll retire. If I retire by I'm 65, it'll be 2065, right? So I'm just going to pick the 2065 fund. That is great. But I have like, <laughs> I have very strong feelings against target date funds. Um, I, I have done some research on these because I had feelings that maybe they're not the greatest thing in the world, but I, I feel very strong about that because they use these super simple mechanics that anyone can use, right? And so that 100 minus your age, like that's kind of the basis of their, their methodology. But the issue that I have is that you have to pay half a percent to 1% or even more to you know, have money in these funds. And so like 1% may not seem like a lot, right? If you're like, oh, I'm making seven or 8% a year. If I take out 1% then that's fine, that's still six or 7%, like that's, I'm growing my money. But the issue is like over the long-term, right? There's this, there's compound interest, but it works inversely as well. Like it can really eat away at your investment. So I have like a little scenario that we can walk through. Let's so if you're, yeah, <laughs> if you're uh, 21, so fresh out of college, you're 21, let's say you don't have anything saved up. You have no investments. You're just getting out into the real world. You get your job and you start saving and investing. You plan to invest about $500 a month so that you can retire by 60. Your goal is 60. You know, you're going to do $500 a month. That's 39 years of investing. If we assume the annual rate of return is 7%, which I think is like a broad consensus, and that's relatively conservative, could be more. But if we assume 7% a year, and then we assume that the fee for your fund is 0.75%, by the time you're 60, you'll have an ending account value of $983,000, which is pretty sweet, right? Um, Good amount but, of money. <laughs> yeah, it's a ton Almost of money. Milli. Like, exactly. And that, that's the thing is like, again, five, we talked about the privilege thing, like $500 is a lot of money a month to be able to save, but it puts it into perspective, like $500, like I spend that pretty easily on random things. So you can kind of get to a million, but the craziest thing about that, this whole scenario is if you're investing in these funds, that 0.75% will have taken out over $200,000 that you could potentially have in your account by the time you retire. And so that's 18% less than you would have had if you had the same performance, just no fees. So it's like 0.75%, not a big deal. $200,000. That's, that's a, that's a big deal. So Eddie, okay. Eddie said, so okay, we don't like target funds. Then what, what are other forms of moolah would you recommend? Yeah. So we can, we're kind of going like top down. So target funds are like the first thing. And it's like, kind of goes from easiest and most, you know, separated from the transactions and like the investing and stuff like that to a little bit more in the weeds of it. Mm -hmm. So the next thing would be um, this thing called ETFs or exchange traded funds. Mm -hmm. It's you basically get a access to a number of stocks and securities that you don't have to pick out. So you say, Hey, I'd like a piece of a little bit of everything, right? Like you can't, you don't want to choose and you don't want to have to worry about that. And so it's great. You can have, you know, you can track the broad market. So you can have uh, 1% of Apple, 1% of Tesla, 1% of Amazon, Google, whatever all with one investment. The beauty of ETFs is that you have many more choices than target date funds, but at much lower costs. Like you can get some ETFs for 0.01%, 0.03%. And that like compared to 0.75%, like that is 0.03% is negligible. And so the cool thing about ETFs is that you can be invested in the markets and making a little bit more active choices without really having to choose the individual names that you would like to invest in. And so the only caveat with um, ETFs is that you have to consider asset allocation. So we talked about it 
you know, the whole 100 minus your age, you, you want to try to split. They recommend splitting between uh, stocks and bonds just because of the risk associated with both of them. Bonds tend to be less risky, although this year has been different. They tend to be less risky over the long term and stocks tend to be a little bit more risky. That's why you get greater returns in stocks and lower returns in bonds. And so in target date funds, they take care of all that. Hey, with ETFs and when you start to pick those, you kind of have to be conscious of, hey, I want to go you know, all in on stocks, but maybe I should put a little bit into bonds or gold or something like that, that moves separate from the stock market. Mm, that's a good point. So it sounds like for the target date fund, it's like the least, the most minimal effort. You just pick the year that you want to retire, put your money in and don't really think about it. ETFs, you can put your money into multiple ones, diversified across different uh, industries or bonds versus stocks. And there's more choice there, but you have to make more effort into deciding which ETF do I, it's not just as simple as the year you want to retire. There's more maybe research that you have to do into it. Yeah, there's a little bit more research. So instead of thinking like, okay, I'm retiring in 2060, 2065, you have to say, okay, I would like, it, it can be pretty simple. You can just say, hey, I want to own an ETF that tracks the entire market. So you can track hundreds of stocks with one investment. And then all you need to do is say, okay, how much, you just have to look at the rates. Some of them will be 0.09, some of them will be 0.03. And so if they all achieve similar long-term performance, you just pick the one with the lowest rates. That's kind of how I view it. If you want to be very, very simple, but there is a marginally more research than a target date fund. So along that note, Eddie, what's the difference between like ETFs and index funds? Um, they're kind of one in the same. Index funds are the ones that track the broad market. So if you think of, you probably heard of maybe the S&P 500, um, the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones, those are indexes. And so index funds are ETFs that track those specific indexes. Then they have then just kind of like general ETFs, you can pick, let's say you want to do something like for me, like I'm in the financial industry. Let's say I you know, want to invest in a financial industry ETF, but I don't know which stocks to pick. I can say, cool, I'll get something that has, you know, your Chase, your JP Morgans, Goldman Sachs, stuff like that. And same with technology. Like, I don't know if I would pick Apple over Amazon or Amazon over Google, but I know that I like the technology space. So I can get an ETF that has a little bit of exposure to all of these different stocks. And what about mutual funds? Is that this similar, different? How does that fit in? So, so then the interesting thing is ETFs um, are kind of auto-managed. So you don't need to worry too much about, like there's no one really overseeing the selection of uh, stocks. Mutual funds are more similar to target date funds. Target date funds are like a form of mutual funds where there's actually someone sitting you know, behind a monitor saying, okay, Hannah, Heidi, Eddie, you guys have X amount of money in this. I'm going to put 5% towards this, 10% towards this, 20% towards something else. And so there, there's also higher fees with mutual funds. It is possible to find some that like outperform the market, but there's that, there's an old statistic that they would always talk about in finance classes. And they even talk about it in my work sometimes where it's like 97% of active, you know, money managers don't beat the stock market. So like why pay for a mutual fund? if they're going to underperform like those index ETFs that you can get for basically free in terms of fees. Makes sense. I believe I have money invested in a 
target date mutual fund and uh, can can say firsthand the fees are kind of high for returns that are minimal marginal i'm actually thinking about moving my money out of it because like when i asked the uh, financial advisor like what's going on here and he kind of explained to me the very simple concept of like oh you're young we're going to invest in stocks and then our strategy is to move you towards bonds and i'm like i could have done that <laughs> you know this is like something that they taught me in finance class so why am i paying this guy one percent of whatever money i have in there to tell me something i already know you're hundred percent right. Like, I, <laughs> and I think, but it's a lot of people don't even get, it's great that you realize that a lot of people don't get yeah. to the stage of realization. The one thing I will note um, is that once you get to a certain income level or certain kind of net worth, it might make sense to work with financial advisors oh, for because sure. then yeah. they can help you with like the, the tax side. Like, you know, we were talking about 401ks, Roth IRAs and the tax implications, but like when you get that much money, you know, uh, 1% saving on tax really, <laughs> really, really adds up. Or like, you know, they can help you save five, 10% on some of your like taxes or your income. And if it costs you one or 2% on the back end, that's, you know, that's, that's a win-win. Yeah. So like making the distinction between this is something I could do for myself versus things are getting a little too complicated. I'd rather delegate this to somebody else that rather than like try to do it myself and have the IRS show up and <laughs> like what's going on <laughs> so what about uh what about ind individual single stocks that sounds like probably the biggest headache to try and manage compared to etfs and target date funds but what is it like investing in individual single stocks yeah so when it comes to single stocks i think it's where that's like the biggest risk reward play of these different investment uh, opportunities that we talked about, right? So for those who are willing to spend the time analyzing each of the stocks and all these opportunities that they have, they can definitely, out, maybe not definitely, but they have a good opportunity, good, good chance of uh, outperforming the market. But most people tend to just kind of pick and choose what they hear online or what they heard from like their, their friend or family or neighbor. And then it leads to below average returns. So, and then stocks, you also need to kind of diversify even further than ETFs. Like we talked about it with ETFs, like diversify between stocks and bonds. But when you look at individual stocks, you have to diversify across, as uh, Hannah, you mentioned, like industries. You can't just buy Apple, Google, Meta, Amazon, you know, NVIDIA and all these other tech companies. And then be like, cool, I'm diversified. I own 10 different stocks because they all get impacted by the same thing. So when it comes to single stocks, you have to be like very diligent and say, okay, I have you know, 20% in here, 20% in here, and so on. And so the way that I kind of do stuff, at least for like long-term investing, is that I'll put money into an ETF, um, you know, after, after, so after the retirement, you know, Heidi, you mentioned the, that margin. After that, using that margin, I'll put some into ETFs that track the broad market, um, some into ETFs that track international markets, and then I'll pick some single stocks that I, you know, I, I like, and I have a, a strong feeling on whether it's like some stocks that I use their products for or stocks that I've done research on, I will pick a few of those. And that's the money that I'm like, I, I'm not going to become a millionaire because one of these just, you know, hits a home run, but it could help a little bit, could hurt a little bit. You know, it's, I'm willing to take that risk because I'm at an age where I have the time to either have it pay off or to make up what I lost. Eddie, when you were buying those like ETF stocks and you're on Fidelity, Charles Schwab, whatever brokerage account or Robinhood, Webull, 
like what what does you know a market order mean what does a limit order mean or like sometimes mutual funds or index funds you can only buy at the end of the day like what are some of the basics that the average person should know when they're in their brokerage account yeah so like the first basic is when you're going to invest um the market is open from 8 30 well i'll talk central time so market's open from 8 30 to 3 um, and that's central standard time and you can adjust that depending on where time zone you're in so those are the times that you can easily um, place transactions so place buy or sell orders and then there are two different types as you mentioned the market and limit and so market is just a buy or sell order that's focus is on speed so once you place this order it will be executed at whatever the market price is so you know if you're trying to buy apple and it's currently trading for 150 dollars and 21 cents and you put in a market order it's probably going to hit at 150 dollars and 21 cents or 22 cents, 23 cents, wherever the market ends up when your order goes through. Um, so it's not really, you're not controlling the price, you're focusing on speed, whereas a limit order has a focus on price. And so for buying and selling, you set a specific maximum or minimum price that you're willing to buy or sell that stock, your ETF at. And so you say, okay, I only wanna buy Apple at $150. Cool, you can set that. If Apple touches $150, then you have, you know, you have a share of Apple. And if Apple doesn't touch it by the end of the day, well, then, you know, you're not out of luck. You just do it again the next day. And then mutual funds and those type of things are a little more difficult because you have to wait till end of day. But when it comes to ETFs and stocks, you can trade as long as the market's open and you can do either of these. There's not like a pro versus a con. Limit orders are normally better, but if you aren't, you know, investing you know, in $100,000 in a single transaction, <laughs> then you can do market orders and you won't really notice too much of a difference. When I think about limit order, because I have put a few, placed a few limit orders that didn't go through because it did, didn't go down to the price that I was looking for. Uh, my fear is that like, there's a slight off chance that whatever stock I'm trying to buy, like there's something just disastrous that happens to it and it hits the limit and it just keeps going down. But that's like a very rare, like occurrence, right? Typically there's not huge events like planes crashing that tank some aerospace company stock that would, that would put you at that risk. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, you're totally correct in your hypothetical example. Um, <laughs> no, you're, you're totally correct. It's like, and, and the thing is, most of the time, uh, the default will be if it doesn't get executed by the end of the day, it's just going to be gone. Um, and you can change that, but that's like the default. So if you say, I wanted to buy this, but I missed it today, that's fine. It's erased. So when tomorrow starts, you have a fresh day and that order's not there. So if something happens overnight, which is we tend to see like some, you know, if you, you'll, you'll tend to see some weird moves sometimes overnight. If some news breaks, whether it's in the past years related to uh, COVID or related to stock earnings and stuff like that, you don't have to worry about the next day. Got it. That's good to know. Very reassuring. <laughs> I didn't know that it reset uh, after after trading hours are, are closed. Hey, BBs. A mid-episode break to say thank you for still tuning in. If you are enjoying this week's episode, please give us a follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts leave a review or send us a voice message. All right, back to the episode. If I am 
the type of investor who's focusing on individual stock purchases, what kinds of taxes do I have to pay on that if I sell maybe within a year or after a year? Are they different tax implications? Yeah, so there are uh, short-term and long-term gains. And so that depends on whether you hold something for a year, um, less than or greater than a year. And so these different percentages are all variable depending on how much you take home, whether it's from your primary job or from a group of different jobs. And so the rates on these vary from, so for short-term capital gains, they're, they're uh, higher percents. And so you're taxed on the profit that you make. So if you buy something for 100, sell for 150, you're not taxed on 150, you're taxed on the 50. And so that ranges anywhere from 10 to 37%, depending on how much you make. So for someone who makes $100,000, I think it's somewhere in the ballpark of like 24%. Then if you, um, for long-term capital gains, it's 0%, 15%, or 20%. So you get a pretty decent tax break. And as you, you know, as you increase your income, you get a pretty, pretty good tax break if you hold something for over a year. So, you know, if, like I mentioned, if you make $100,000, your long-term rate is 15% and your short-term rate is 24%. So that's a really, really big difference. And if possible, try to hold investments for over a year for like longer-term investments. But the way I look at it is it's better, like if something, let's say you bought a stock and two months later, it doubles. If that happens and you are happy, don't say, okay, I'm just going to wait 10 more months so that I don't have to get taxed 24% on it. Like it's on paper. It's not a real, it's not real money until you sell it. So it's fine to sell things before a year. If it means that you are, you know, collecting a good profit, right? Like don't, don't say like, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to hold on to this just because I don't want to get taxed the extra 9%, just, just bite the bullet. Because again, you're only taxed on profits. You're not going to get taxed on your losses. So don't, don't try to hold anything or try to play too, too long. If it's like close, then you can wait. Eddie, let's talk about diversification. We hear people talking about how important it is to diversify their um, investments, their income. What are some types of ways that an individual can diversify wealth and just make it overall less risky for them? So when it comes to diversification, there are two different main ways that I think of diversification. You can diversify your investments and then you can diversify your income. And so on the investment side, we kind of talked about it. You know, you, when you diversify, you split it across industries, across sectors, across different companies. You can go across borders if you want. Um, and then also, you know, stocks and bonds and gold and so on. The importance of diversifying investments is that you decrease your overall risk and the likelihood that you see these large swings in your portfolio from single events. Things like COVID will impact your portfolio regardless of how diversified you are, but the earnings of one company aren't going to completely destroy your investments when you are diversified. I always include this on every type of uh, study that I do for work, and a lot of times when I'm on air, I'll always say that investing is a game of risk management not return amplification. When everything's going well, people love to you know, chase returns and kind of borrow more money than they can really afford to and just like go for, you know, go for gold. But when things start to go negatively, that's when you realize the importance of diversification and how it can really, really help you in the long term. Like, yes, if you make 200%, but then you lose 75%, you were better off, you know, 
being a little bit more conservative, making 50%, you only lose like 20%. Um, and then with the income, it's, I think of diversifying income as if you were like investing. And so if you have one employer, um, if you have one employer, you only, you know, you have one source of income, you get 100% of your income from this one person versus having 10 different streams of income, which is, which is, you know, a lot of different things, but like 10 different clients, maybe if one of those clients drops off, then you're fine. You still have 90% of your money. Like it's so backwards that a lot of us within like corporate America think that having a job is the most secure, like financially secure thing, because, you know, going and working as an accountant for a big four company doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be fine and dandy and you'll, you're safe. It's more so like, if they decide that they don't need you, you're expendable, that you go from 100% to zero overnight. Can you hear the snaps? I agree too. <laughs> and I think this is one of like, when we first just talked about financial literacy and all of this, Eddie, like that was one of the most relatable sentiments because at school we're taught like your first job out of college is the most important one. But I feel like instead they should, like you said, what are some skills that are transferable? What can you do after work? Or like, what can you do? What can you do in your sleep that your money is doing for you? So that, like you said, when your one job is gone, you're not left scrambling. So I'll add to that. And I'll say that I feel like the way that the education system set us up is like, we all believed at one point that the way to become wealthy and build wealth is to have as high of a salary as possible. And it, it definitely helps. It's a privilege that helps you get a head start in building wealth, but like people really don't make wealth from their nine to five jobs. And I feel like it almost like stifles some creativeness or entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit from, from some of us when we do give everything to our nine to five and we're paid on a set salary rather than pursuing our interests that could give us exponential returns on, on the time that we put in. hundred percent in college. I had one professor probably out of 50 who ever talked about this. And he's also the one who introduced me to dozens of entrepreneurs who are working. Like they're people that could be your neighbors who, you know, are just doing very, what you wouldn't think of as like a high paying job, right? Like some people are painting the inside of a house or changing the siding yeah. or they do HVAC or plumbing. It, it seems like very, like for those who work like corporate jobs, you know, a lot of like the stereotypical people are like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go work this, you know, white collar job and do blah, 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 blah. Well, those are the people who, the people who are running these companies, like these siding companies, those are the ones who are millionaires. Like you, those are the people who are making real money. It's not okay, I need to increase my salary. It's no, I need to do something outside. And it's, but it's all, so not all about money. It's better to be, you know, to make $50,000. There's like a limit, right? That like, how can money buy happiness type of thing? Like can money buy happiness? There's a limit. They said it's somewhere between like 75,000 and a hundred thousand dollars. If you have a family, it's a very different number. But once you get above that hundred thousand dollar threshold, it's like, okay, is my quality of life worth sacrificing to make $150,000? Not really. It's like the constant struggle. I feel like for millennials, it's like, do I sell my soul to corporate just for <laughs> maybe an, an extra $150 in my biweekly paycheck that half goes to taxes or 
do I have that work-life balance and I can have different side hustles or enjoy my life? (laughs) Um, So speaking about millionaires and the different kinds, we know that one type of millionaire is probably living off of their investments. And so Eddie, like, what does it mean when someone is living off of their investments and how can an average person get there? There's this rule of thumb that's kind of been floating around the finance space and like personal finance space for decades now. And it's this old study that goes back and says, okay, you can withdraw 4% of your account each year in retirement and never run out of money. That's, that's the kind of definition of living off your investments is if you are able to draw 4% and that covers your monthly or your, you know, your annual expenses and also just like what you want to buy, then you're okay. Then you have enough saved. And so to understand how much you need to do that, like how can, how can I get there? Right. I'm 20 something, like I'm not making CEO type money. How can I retire and then live off the money that I make or invest? So you just have to determine how much you want to live on in retirement each year. So let's say, you know, I want to be able to spend $50,000 a year. I'm not going to receive $50,000 a year in income. I'm going to spend $50,000 a year, right? And so it's very different because when you make $75,000, you really end up making $50,000 now because you get taxed. But when you're in retirement and you can take advantage of tax benefits, but even if you have to pay taxes, let's just say $50,000, a nice whole number, very simple to work with. All you have to do is divide that number by 0.04. And that's the amount that you need to have invested so that you can retire and live off of it into perpetuity. So what that means is if you want $50,000, you need to have 1.25 million at retirement. So once you hit retirement, then you're good. Um, And so again, like if you start with zero, if you assume seven or 8% returns a year, you can retire by 51 by investing $887 a month. And if you push your retirement to 60, you only need to contribute $420 a month to reach your goal of living off your investments in retirement. When you put it into like simpler math terms like that, it becomes a lot, it feels a lot more achievable because I think when I think about investing, like I never have, I never had a target number in mind. I was always under the impression of like, whatever number is in the account by the time I'm 60 or 65 is what I'm going to have to deal with. And I never thought about how it relates to the amount that I'm contributing per month. So I feel like it's good to break it out into like the present value of what you can contribute today and how that could translate into the future value of what you have to spend at retirement. Yeah. I think seven figures is really like some people view it as a fantasy. Like it's impossible to be able to achieve that amount. Like I'm going to do what I can, but but if you, once you put it in perspective and it's like time is on your side, especially for those who are, you know, under 30, but honestly, anyone, whether you're 30 or 40, you just adjust those numbers, maybe a little more frugal, but you can, it's very, very possible. And then it also, I think when you see how much you can have at the end of the line, it like really, it shows you the light at the end of the tunnel versus you just funneling money into your investment account month after month with like a, I'm never going to have enough to retire versus like this, you know, this $400, like maybe I save an extra hundred dollars this month by you know, not going out to eat a couple of times or not going out to a bar because I know that that is going to be so much more down the line. And again, <laughs> I'm not saying save, like just invest all your money and don't have fun, but you, know, you balance it. It gives you some type of incentive. It's like, wow, this is a big goal, but I can actually achieve it. I mean, it's like the perfect tactic to stay away from what's the 
lifestyle creep, or it's like, you know, I mean, Hannah and I, we like to online window shop. And sometimes it's a good way to be like, do I really need another pair of jeans? Maybe not. <laughs> like that could go into maybe 40 year old Heidi or even 30 year old Heidi and Hannah could benefit from one less pair of jeans. Better helps the environment too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I need this kind of pep talk before I make an impulse purchase. Like I feel like it, it just, it makes so much sense that we're talking about it now, but it's also hard to implement and apply when you're in the moment and you just are feeling a little silly and impulsive. But my something my dad has always said that I feel like is very applicable to what we're talking about is the best time to like plant a, a fruit tree is 20 years ago because now you get to reap the benefits of all this wonderful fruit. And I feel the same way towards investing where it's like, you feel like you have nothing today, but you, like you said, Eddie, you have time working on your side. So even if you just contribute a hundred dollars today, what it could become in the future is obviously much more than if you had just given up on day one or day zero. The second best time to plant the seed is now. You forgot mm -hmm. the second half, Hannah. So then Eddie, another big part of financial literacy and stocks in general is where you get your information. And so now with the boom of TikTokers, YouTubers, there's just a lot of money influencers. So do you have an influencer that you follow? I can't necessarily like advocate for one <laughs> influencer or multiple influencers because on like my YouTube page or TikTok or something, there are a ton of videos from like Graham Stefan and, and Andre Zik and all these different finfluencers as we can, we can refer to them, finance influencers. Uh, and I'll sometimes watch those, right? Like they're, they're entertaining. They're entertaining finance videos. That's how I view them rather than informative finance videos. But influencers in general, I tend to avoid as they alter my perspective on investing. And sometimes like, again, in order to get views, in order to get people to like, listen and, you know, see what you're doing, you have to lure them in. And a lot of times these videos are going to be titled, you know, why our investments are going to zero tomorrow or why this is going to happen. And it almost like watching those videos only hits on like negative points and sometimes the opposite. It hits on only positive points and it like skews my perspective. So TLDR, I tend to avoid them. I mean, I'll share one that I did have probably a moment sometime last year where every day I just watched Dave Ramsey videos. Like I probably watched all of his videos and I guess like, what is your take on Dave Ramsey? Because I think the, the more I've educated on myself, there are some of his uh, lessons or strategies where I don't necessarily believe, but I can see his reasoning. But like, what do you think is at the core of Dave Ramsey's approach? And maybe you can give like a little bit of a summary of what his approach is too. Yeah. So I, I, uh, Dave Ramsey is, I consider him in a different category than like the traditional financial influencer, just because I think of like these influencers as these 20 or 30 sums who are like newer on TikTok and YouTube and stuff like that. Dave Ramsey has been doing this for, for a minute, but you're right. He isn't, he's a financial influencer. And so before I give you my opinion, I'll just break down kind of what he does. He is really focused on creating emergency fund for yourself in case something happens and paying off all of your debt ASAP, right? Those are his two biggest messages. And then beyond that, it's saving for your children's ed education, saving for retirement, stuff like that. But he really focuses on have money just in case something happens 
and make sure that you don't have debt that's kind of eating away at your potential net worth. And so I think that it's great. Like, I think that this message is great for people who are aiming to become financially literate. You maybe don't have background knowledge on it. I personally maybe have a slightly better perspective on him than, you know, someone who like really looks into it because I had a teacher in high school who went through the, like who actually was on his show. Um, no and way. He and his, yeah, he and his wife, they had, they had three kids. Um, he was a physics teacher. I believe his wife was a teacher at one of the other schools in the district. They both had a ton of student debt and, um, you know, their mortgage, they, they had a, like their mortgage was still very large and they had a lot of debt that they amassed over the years, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, within a few years of kind of following all these things and going through this, they were able to, you know, break the shackles of debt and become free. And so hearing from him like firsthand, and then also he showed me the episode that he was Did on. Did he do the debt scream? Wait, the debts? No, he didn't. Oh, or maybe, maybe I missed that. I didn't watch it. wasn't invented just, yet. He just showed okay. me part of it. <laughs> but just like seeing that firsthand and how much of a positive impact it had on his life and the life, the lives of his children and moving forward, right? They're young kids. They're in elementary school. That is why I'm like, I think that he's a good starting point for a lot of people. If this is what gets you through the door, by all means, I am as positive as I can be about it. That's how it is with a lot of influencers, but at least Dave Ramsey isn't trying to you know, um, fudge the numbers and like lie, you know, they're not saying, Oh, I have a way that you can make a million dollars by tomorrow. He's more realistic and like, Hey, you know, this is just, this is how to approach your own money to make sure that you have wealth in the future. I, I, I absolutely agree. Eddie. I think because we're in such a privileged state, the average American probably is living paycheck to paycheck. And like you said, Dave Ramsey helps them get out of that hole and so that's a good perspective because sometimes I do like group the influencers together like there's the Instagram like you are rich rich BFF she talks more about just like working at the stock market and different like money hacks you can do and then we have Dave Ramsey Grams all these other influencers but I like that Eddie yeah I also liked what you said about like maybe Dave Ramsey is the person that gets you started on financial literacy and understanding, you know, how to get out of credit card debt. And then once you establish that baseline foundation of like, I now know what to do with my money. You don't necessarily have to follow Dave Ramsey's method to the grave. There's a lot of other perspectives out there and you might change your mind one or two years into your like investing journey. I think yeah. that he's a great first step. He helps you break free from a lot of the debt and just build good habits. And then once you have those built, you can, you have the freedom now to do, to kind of carve your own path. And I think that that's very, very important. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's an important lesson. Like when you go through different stages of your financial journey, like how we look at investments, like sometimes you, you do need to look at it every year, or every month. And like, maybe not let it sit for five years. Like you do need to readjust your plan, readjust how much risk you want to do. So likewise, like when you get to a more comfortable financial state, maybe like Hannah said, Dave Ramsey, isn't your best person. And then you can switch to someone else. And then Eddie, besides influencers, what are your favorite financial apps or even brokerages? I'll cover I'll get the biased ones out of the way, right? So as I mentioned, I work for a company called Tasty Trade, where we provide, you know, resources for people looking to improve their financial literacy and 
kind of take their money in their own hands. So Tasty Trade obviously is my, my number one recommendation, but I can say this as someone who spent you know hundreds of hours watching the shows, reading the content and kind of immersing myself in this stuff. Even before I started working, the job just happened to come up and you know I'm very fortunate, I'm glad. But it's a really good place for people to start and there are shows for everyone, whether you're a beginner, whether you're someone who is has more of this knowledge, right? But I will say that Tasty Trade does have more of a focus towards uh, active investing and trading. So it doesn't mean quitting your day job and being one of those people who have a dozen monitors around them monitoring every single stock and doing that. But it's more so, you know, spending 20 to 30 minutes a day, almost like you would in like a morning routine, spending 20 to 30 minutes a day, you know, managing your portfolio, trading this and that and closing out of positions. So for that, that's really great. Investopedia is where I would start for anyone who wants to become financially literate. They have uh, more information for free on that website than I think anywhere else when it comes to finance. And it's, they have courses and everything structured well. They have videos that are really nice with these like infographics, very simple, very straightforward and relatively unbiased when you, it's difficult to find these like financial apps that can teach you stuff. So that's like a website side on the app side. We talked about uh, managing expenses a little bit, but mint is like the easiest app to use to track your expenses. So even if you don't have a budget and you don't want to stick to something like that, Mint is uh, pretty essential in understanding where your money's going and can help you to pinpoint some like maybe bigger leaks in the boat that is your finance, you know, your boat to financial freedom. It's like, huh, didn't realize I spent $200 at, you know, insert a coffee shop, or I didn't realize I was spending $150 a month on various subscriptions. So for that side, Mint's really good. And then if you want to kind of educate yourself in that regard between like apps and various websites, you can use something like I use the Wall Street Journal or the Economist that give you broad perspective on what's going on in the world, but then also like stocks specific perspective. And then most brokers like Heidi, you mentioned earlier, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, they provide free research and insights for stocks as long as you have an account there. So I use the, the, the kind of a combination of that to get my research and then get a little bit of information. And then for brokerages, I, again, am a little biased because we also, there's a broker called Tastyworks that's associated with the company. But the reason I like it is because there's no barriers to entry. A lot of like, like E-Trade, Rob, Robinhood, it also helps like remove those barriers. But, you know, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, every, all these big brokerages, if you don't have over, you know, if you don't have this many zeros on the back of your account, you can't do XYZ, you can't trade XYZ. Whereas with Tastyworks, it's like, hey, fund an account. Like you just have to be aware, like you can do whatever you want. You can invest and trade whatever you want. And so I'm an advocate for people like kind of learning by doing. I'm not saying put your retirement savings or your college savings, your child's college savings into some account and burn it away. But I think it's really nice to just to give people the flexibility to do what they want with their money rather than having them overcome all of these hurdles before getting there. But as a, you know, as a secondary one, your Fidelity and your Charles Schwab's are good options. Eddie, what does wealth look like or what does it mean to you? Before I get into it, I actually kind of want to hear Heidi's perspective. Heidi, what, it, what does it look like for you? I'm curious. Uh, well, to be wealthy, um, I think in its simplest terms, well, actually, I feel like it's twofold. One, it means that you can make your money work for you. And then two, instead of money being a constant worry or anxiety inducing idea, you don't really have to think about it much. And then you're also able to give back however much you want. I think this relates back to like my upbringing and like money has always been, I feel like a topic that I would hear 
more often than I wanted to. So it's like this idea of being wealthy is such a luxury mentally, I think. Um, so I think it's more, has a more emotional aspect to it than perhaps some other people. What about you, Eddie? I, I, you hit the nail on the head. I think that being wealthy, I think of it as being financially free. So you don't need to, you don't need to be stressed by money. You don't need another stressor in life on top of everything else. I was, you know, as we were preparing for this, I was doing a little bit of research and it said that 72% of Americans, according to the American Psychological Association, um, report that they feel stressed about money at least once a month. And so with everything that's going, that's been going on the past two years, and especially this year, you know, whether it's the, the worry about rising inflation, gas prices, what, whatever it is, I think that that number is probably even higher. And finances are also the number one cause of stress. And it's um, non-proportionally distributed, the stress. It's more so on the younger generations. A lot of the older generations are like, I made my money. I'm okay. I'll be fine. I'm close to retirement. I can see the, the light. Whereas a lot of us who are younger, when we see these huge booms in house housing prices, it's like, well, I, I can't afford a house anymore. So that there's that gone. I'm just going to keep renting for the rest of my life. And so I think that being wealthy means that you can kind of circumvent some of those stressors. Um, and then to say, to kind of tie back to a point that that professor who had told me about diversifying income, that same professor, just full of insight, super, super fantastic person. Well, wait, that, do you remember who, what the professor's name is? Uh, he taught Finn 423. And Mark he, Smith? no, it wasn't Mark Smith. Okay. Mark, Mark Smith was also incredible. And I learned a lot from him. Um, oh man. It's okay. I mean, could I always send it, it to Kru- him. It was Kruger. I believe it was Professor Kruger. Oh, and shout he, out to Professor Kruger. He is like, a, he's a serial entrepreneur, but he told me that money provides the ability to do a greater amount of good. Um, so once you have the money to take care of yourself and your family, any excess can be used to improve the lives of others. I don't mean this in the sense of like, oh, I'm just going to donate $50,000 to this organization. Cause like that's well-intentioned, but I mean it more so in the sense of like, you can build things that help people. You can create nonprofits. You can work with nonprofits. You can help in specific areas that you are able to rather than just sending money to like Red Cross or doing something like that. Like you can really kind of take it in your own hands and impact people and make a tangible change on the world by having some form of wealth. And again, that's like a very privileged thing to say, but I think that for many people it's possible and they just kind of forget about it once they reach there. It's the whole idea of you really, really have to grind and hustle, but once you get there, you got to like turn around and help people get to where you are. Yeah. I also think it has a trickle effect of when you mentioned, like when you have the money to take care of yourself and then your family, like once your family feels secure and stable, they show up differently in their circle of networks. And then it, it like then impacts the, the next layer. And so then more people, it's like this compounding effect. But what about you, Hannah? What does wealth mean to you? Honestly, I not much different from what you two have already shared. I really liked, Betty, what you said about how it's not just about you and your immediate family, but also how can you use wealth after a certain level to help the community? I think it's something that, yeah, not a lot of people think about because they had to hustle and grind for it. I think, and this is, you know, rightfully so, they feel entitled to it, that it's theirs. Um, But it's always good to keep in mind that, you know, there's others out there that, could benefit from whatever you're able to contribute 
whatever you don't really need at the end of the day, just to fulfill your basic living. Um, to me, I think true wealth is getting to a point where you don't have to make trade-offs between doing the things you like for money. Like, I feel like that's a trade-off that a lot of young people <laughs> have to make because like we work these corporate jobs that maybe not all of us find a lot of fulfillment for, but that's what we think we have to do to get capital, to invest, to build a certain level of wealth. And I don't know, I, I, I always think that if you are born into wealth, it's just so much easier to build wealth on top of that. For example, if I had a trust fund with a million dollars, I could put half of that into some random ETF or index fund, and I could get $100,000 just like that in a, in, in a few years. Whereas people who don't start out with that level of wealth, they have to work years just to build up the capital and then wait an additional five to 10 years to see the returns on that. So that's kind of my perspective on wealth, but it really just comes down to not having to do things that make you miserable and, and uh, don't fulfill you just to make ends meet. I agree so strongly with that. That's all I want to say. Like, I don't want to snap <laughs> so loud that the audio is messed up, but I like feel you can so- snap, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> love that given that there are trade-offs in life sometimes we give up our interests and passions for money and capital as we're getting that capital eddie are there some mistakes that you've experienced along the way love to hear what some of your failing forward occurrences have been yeah so i'll talk about i think all of mine were something that is just like common for people getting into the space is that the first one is trying to time the market. Nobody can do it. If these people could, if everyone could do it, everyone would be super wealthy. Um, and if there are people like Warren Buffett around who, it, I mean, super, super wealthy people and has more resources, both like capital and minds, like intelligent people around him, if they can't time the market, then what, <laughs> what luck do I have? But I, you know, I always told myself like, oh, I can time this. And then Two months later, I'm down 30% because I picked a high or whatever like that. The following of, I know I kind of um, poo-pooed on some of the Finfluencers earlier. Um, Continue on. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's kind of how I also feel is like following some of this like social media advice and recommendations. You'll see people, it's been especially prevalent on TikTok. Mm. Like I feel like on YouTube, there's at least some sense of education tied in there but a lot of the tiktok things because it's so short because it's so snappy sometimes it's like i think this is going to 10x in the next 10 days get in now get in now right and they don't have they're not regulated or required to disclose any information whereas on youtube you actually are so on tiktok it's those regulations aren't in place and so not that i fell prey to it but i had a lot of friends who have texted me especially like when i was in college hey, what do you think about this, this, and this as an investment? And I'm like, where did you find out about this random company that I've never heard of? They're like, oh, oh. I saw it on a TikTok. And I'm like, oh, be careful. So, so, so that's another thing. Uh, one thing that I was also really bad at when I was, I'm still pretty bad at it now, but less so, but it caused a lot of stress when I was younger is always watching my investments. Like I was checking my phone a dozen times a day to say, oh man, I'm up hundred dollars. Oh man, I'm down 200. And then it would cause like, I don't want to say mood swings, but it would alter my mood for the rest of the day. And if I, th that wasn't good, right? And I realized that, I recognized that. So now I'm like, I'll check in the morning, put on some trades, check at the end of the day, things worked out, cool, things didn't work out. That's fine. There's 251 other trading days in the year. <laughs> and then the last thing was putting all your eggs in a basket. We talked about diversification, but 
if you are, I made this mistake, you know, and I lost <laughs> like 50% of my money at one point, I just because, <laughs> yeah, just because I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is a no brainer. Uh, it turns out that it was a no brainer in the sense of like, wow, I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we all have those moments. Okay. So then Eddie, all those mistakes and what, what should we be doing instead to combat those mistakes? The first thing that you should probably do, um, Hannah, I know you mentioned this earlier about this whole idea of an investment plan. You know, we think about it as like, I'm just going to put whatever I can towards there. But if you create an investment plan and stick to it, so even if it's just, just I'm going to put $100 a month or how if you get paychecks biweekly, I'm going to put $50 a paycheck into an ETF, into the stock market, into my 401k, into my IRA, whatever it is. Just kind of stick to that plan and make it reasonable. Don't try to say, okay, I make $1,000 a month. I'm going to put $850 into the stock market because then you're never going to reach it and you're always going to be kicking yourself. So create an investing plan, stick to that plan and <laughs> avoid social media for your financial advice. Uh, if someone that you're paying 0.75% or 1%, like Hannah, you were talking about earlier, if they can't beat the markets, I there's a 99.9% .9 chance that a 22-year-old on TikTok can also not beat the markets. Checks out. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, social media, I feel like, is at times a huge blessing and also a curse with all the potential misinformation that, that it could spread. So, <laughs> Okay, speaking of social media, um, I see this like TikTok or Instagram reel all, all over of like guys and girls, I think especially like brokenhearted girls being like, I'm only 25 once and you see them on a moped in like Italy. Like I'm only 25 once living in Europe with a broken heart or whatever. And it, which is fair and it's true. And like their next sentence is saying like, oh, I can make this $2,000 or $3,000 back. Um, but I guess like Eddie, what's, what's your perspective on that? Because then I saw <laughs> I'm your rich BFS post kind of um, responding to that saying like, yes, you can make the money back, but it, it'll take you even more dollars to, to earn that $3,000 10 years down the line. So it like comes back to the, to the theme of balance of like striking the right balance of pleasure and discipline and that delayed satisfaction when you can. So uh, I guess like Eddie, you have any advice or relevant examples that you can share with our BBs? Of course, of course. I see those all the time and <laughs> I remember being very, very jealous. And then it's very impulsive. Comments, yeah, oh, it totally is. I'm, I'm like, like, okay, well, I'll just go to, I'm gonna book a ticket too. <laughs> I'm booking a ticket to Greece. You, me and Hannah, we're all going to Greece tomorrow. <laughs> I saw a couple of things like that's just how it is. And so it's really hard to look at those and think, man, why, why, why can't I do that? Why am I sitting here investing money and doing all this stuff? But you never know their situation. You talked about like, uh, Hannah, you mentioned these like trust fund people. And I think that uh, there are more social media influencers than we would probably imagine who are products of like trust funds, because I'm not saying everyone, there are some who are just, who have naturally kind of created this path and carved their own way. But you don't, you never know someone's situation, right? They could be, they could have millions in the bank at the age of 22 and not have to worry about working. But the thing that's important is that I would be cautious of using, like I talked about these investments earlier and, you know, the percents and how much you could make if you invested this much a month, be cautious of using those calculators because it's going to lead you to 
not, it's going to lead you to delaying satisfaction too much. Cause you're like, Oh, if I just save a hundred more dollars this month, I can have like 50 extra thousand dollars when I retire. But also when you retire at 65, maybe, right. If you retire at 65, you're not going to be in your best physical condition. You're not, you might not have all the friends that you have now. You might not even make it there. Like you have to understand that the present is more important than the future in a lot of cases. Um, and there's this book that, again, I haven't read it yet. So I can't speak too highly of it yet, but based on uh, a couple of videos about it and some summaries I've read, I think it'll definitely be next. It's called Die With Zero. It basically talks about you don't want to have any money left in the bank when you die, right? Because all of that money that's left over is money that you, it's experiences that you sacrificed. And so life is all about kind of gaining these experiences and your quality of life is just a sum of the experiences rather than the amount of zeros in your bank account. So you might as well enjoy it while you can. Um, and so we can link it in the description, but there's a YouTuber named Ali Abdal who had a recent video on this and it really, I don't know, it just struck a chord with me. I love that. I am a huge proponent of spending, you know, not living too much for the future. I think I have a tendency to do this, not necessarily always with money, but with, you know, my perspective on life. It's always, oh, I can't wait until, you know, two years from now when I can do this or go on this trip and not realizing that you live in the present. And I think that also applies to what you said about not, you know, giving up fun experiences now just to save and save every single penny for the, a future that is very uncertain. I think COVID really helped put it into perspective as well. Like seeing what has happened to so many people's lives um, and also seeing how one such event can cause changes that were so unexpected for years to come, right? When, when this first happened, it was like two weeks. Now it's two and a half years. And you don't want to kind of delay things in the hopes that, oh, okay, you know, next time will be, the time will be better. The timing will be better next time. Enjoy life. And the, as long as you, again, I'm not saying live above your means, but enjoy the life that you have while you have it. Whether you're a beginner or if you're totally financially literate on all aspects of saving, investing, and giving, we hope that this episode served as a good reminder or a piece of learning for our BBs. Investing can seem complicated when you're first getting started, but having that baseline level of financial understanding can help us see the implications of investing our money today. It's really never too late to start making the changes to get the best financial outcomes for your life and for your goals. So to conclude this episode, thank you, Eddie, for joining us. We hope that we can hear maybe more of your perspectives and wisdom in later episodes.